Talk Money is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. <coughs> For updates, further breakdowns, and past episodes of this podcast, sign up at thetalkmoney.com. In today's episode of the podcast, we're showing our support for Node Health. Node Health is the leading professional association bringing in evidence-based medicine practice to digital health. To learn more, please visit nodehealth.org. Link is in the episode notes. And now on with the show. On today's episode of Talk Money, we hear directly from the people at the center of it all, the doctors. This is the price of a pandemic. My name is Burr, and I am a physician who practices in Washington, D.C. My name is Natasha, and I work at the John Radcliffe in Oxford in the United Kingdom. And Corona has changed my life drastically in the last couple of weeks, months, actually. The virus has affected the emergency department volume substantially since it hit the United States. We are seeing a lot more in what we call true emergencies, where patients tend to be more critically ill because a lot of people have decided to put off seeing a doctor due to the coronavirus. The word unprecedented has been used so many times that I no longer even take cognizance of it. Guidelines and policies that were previously drilled into me to perfection have now just been dismissed within seconds. Um, I am challenged mentally every day, but I am exhausted every day. We have recently lost colleagues in the workplace and I'm still dealing with the consequences of that. I often lay awake at night and I think, was I wrong? Is the surge still coming? Is this the first peak? Are we actually successful in flattening the curve? And then my mind drifts to other things like PPE and when we're going to run out and how I hate donning and doffing because it leaves you dehydrated your mask fogs, you're sweating. It's always debatable whether or not in times of crisis when doctors and nurses you know, are on the front line trying to take care of America's ill and whether it is the right time to cut their pay. The company that I work for has decided to cut back on part of our original compensation package. In my family, I have a six-month-old daughter and a non-working spouse who's entirely reliant on me to keep the family going. And so I started looking into life insurance and considering increasing the amount of policy coverage that I, I, I currently have because the risks are a lot more real and you see them every day when you go to work. To say that we are not afraid of this it would be to, to tell a lie. I think deep down, we always worry that we might become a potential vector and bring home this virus to our family. And in terms of mental support, I think the hospital has been incredible in providing that, especially when we've lost loved ones in our own trust. And I wonder about this vaccine and if it is actually going to make a difference, when it's going to arrive, if we're making headway. I want to say that mentally, um, I have become increasingly frustrated. A very wise attending once told me that as an ER physician, your job is so hard that you have to litmus yourself against the number of bad shifts you have versus the number of good shifts you have. And she said that if you work a week and two shifts out of five are bad, that's probably what you can expect as a physician. But recently I've been finding myself to be frustrated five out of five shifts. How do we rethink medicine in the setting of patients who now have the coronavirus? I have never felt such uncertainty in my career and I really have no idea what the next minute is going to bring. 
Hi everyone, Mesh here from Talk Money, and welcome back to The Price of a Pandemic, our series where we discuss how the coronavirus is affecting the economy, business, markets, and investing. If you tuned into our show last week, you heard about the incredible pressure on hospitals during this pandemic, and how it's affected nurses specifically. Today, we turn our attention to ER doctors at all stages in their careers, from residents to attending physicians. This is wartime for them, and the stakes have never been higher. But their intense workloads and ability to support themselves are vital issues, ones that are hugely influenced by the political structure of the medical industry. It's the last thing they should have to worry about at a time like this. But sometimes, it takes a harsh light to illuminate the cracks in the system. Innovations around digital health are crucial for both doctors and patients, whether we're sick or healthy. As healthcare workers continue to risk their lives, are they being compensated fairly? How much are doctors worth, especially when they're so crucial to surviving a crisis? In today's episode, we learn more about the future of digital health and what it's been like for the early career doctors in the trenches. I talked to my good friend, Nithin Vaswani, who's an investor in the healthcare sector, as well as a trained clinician in Washington, DC. My name is Nitin Vazwani, and I actually do a bunch of things. I actually started my career off in the medical profession. So I'm a trained surgeon, and then I actually made a switch recently, went into the financial world, had a short career on Wall Street, and then shifted toward doing investments in healthcare diagnostics and digital health. Beyond that, I do a lot of on-the-ground clinical training for community health workers in low-income communities. So I actually grew up in Indonesia. So part of my interest in working in medicine has been to support marginalized communities or low-income populations who need care the most. And that's kind of where I spend most of my time these days. That is amazing. But while you're not in Indonesia or these places overseas, you're based in Washington, D.C., no? That's right. My main focus today is in digital health. So I support developing healthcare diagnostics and digital health companies and bringing those types of companies and solutions to both healthcare providers and to patients in large academic settings and also directly in the community. And right now in the midst of COVID-19, are you focusing more on working in the ERs or with patients directly? Yeah, in fact, it's become even more important. We're trying to find a way for healthcare workers to continue to provide services while they're at home. I know this sounds like an oxymoron. So for example, I spend time working at a hospital in D.C., and they were trying to migrate all their care from face-to-face care to telecare. So for example, before COVID-19 hit, the number of telemedicine services were in the single digits. All of a sudden, it's ramped up to the hundreds and now to the thousands, right? So you're seeing this major shift in terms of what healthcare needs to be. And it's, this is something that I've been screaming about to the healthcare community and saying, we need to do more of this. And we need to do more of this for a variety of reasons. First and foremost is protecting healthcare workers, but secondly, it's actually protecting patients who are coming to the hospital. If they don't need to be there, your chances of getting exposure to an infection or other things within kind of a closed unit is actually higher than you being in the comforts of your own home. And Nithin, can you walk us through your medical career and then how you've ended up now in this position? Right. So I grew up overseas. I went to undergrad in the U.S. for four years, and then I went to medical school back home in Australia. And it was a very similar system to the U.S. for four more years. And then I did five years of residency. So that's 13 years. And then after residency, I moved to Baltimore, to Johns Hopkins, where I did a research fellowship on top of doing healthcare business classes. So I did an MBA as well as a public health degree. 
and so you basically say it takes anywhere from you know ten to thirteen years to become an MD. Um, like for the frontline ER physicians that are in there at the hospitals, what is the average cost of going through medical school and everything that comes with that? So the average medical school debt, kids getting out of medical school today is two hundred thousand dollars. Now the cost of it, if you're an undergrad, let's say you go to a private school, say it's forty k a year, it's one hundred sixty k. You go to a private medical school, it's another sixty to seventy k a year. Right, that's two eighty k for med school. For undergrad, obviously, that has some differences if you go into a state school or a private school. Now, some of us get scholarships, some of us are parents help us or other colleagues help us. But the average debt coming out across the board, most kids are coming out of med school with two hundred thousand dollars in debt in the United States. And are younger MDs that are getting out of med school able to pay off their student loans soon after their residency? Yeah, no. So, that, and this is where I think this pandemic has created maybe a little bit of tension or differences of opinion when it coming to younger physicians. So, the average medical resident pay in the U.S. today is sixty k. The lowest paid residents are those who work in family medicine, the emergency room physicians, internal medicine, and these are the folks that are the most in demand during a pandemic like COVID nineteen. The guys that are making kind of the higher pay during residencies, so like the surgeons or anesthesiologists, and so on and so forth. Their pay is actually higher. Now, then you take that one step further, where it's like, okay, you're getting out of uh, residency and then you're attending. The average pay there is about three hundred thousand dollars a year. There are huge gaps there as well, right? So if you're a neurosurgeon, super specialized, you're making more than the three hundred. If you're family medicine, less specialized, or ER, less specialized, you're making less, or in and about the average. And who's actually paying that? Is the hospital paying that salary or is it a private practice? Can you explain a little bit about how the business of that works so we can just understand where the pay comes from? Yeah. When you're a medical resident, the pay comes directly from the hospital or in some cases it's sponsored by bodies like Medicare or government or private institutions. Now, on the attending side, when you become kind of a full-size physician and you're out of residency, there are huge differences of what's happening. So previously, a lot of physicians that came together, created a private practice, and then provided their services to the hospital. So private surgeons or more specialized physicians, right? For a lot of us who are on the front lines, for example, in ER or in internal medicine or working in kind of academic settings, we're salaried. But that's been a big shift. In the past, most physicians, I'm talking decades ago, people would come out of medical school and then set up their own practice. But because of rising rent, rising legal costs, billing costs, there's been a huge shift in that paradigm. And so that would mean kind of similar to affording rent in big cities, you end up moving to smaller cities or the suburbs. Well, there's also a lot more opportunity, right? I got to be clear here. I'm talking about the younger physicians that are coming out, right? Like a lot of us kind of are trying to go to rural areas because there's lack of services or there's a maldistribution, I would say, of, of medical services there. So it gives you an opportunity to kind of serve a patient population where it isn't as competitive. Like if you're in Washington, D.C., for example, or in New York City, there are a lot more specialists around. So I say a bunch of us are coming out of medical school. We have each of us have $200,000 in debt. Like, we don't have a lot of capital to invest into a private practice, right? No, it makes perfect sense. You had mentioned to me that you were doing some volunteer work in the emergency room or in the hospitals with patients. I was doing that outside of the U.S. So I was spending time with communities where we were seeing flares, right? People were in acute respiratory distress. That means they were having a lot of trouble breathing and didn't know why they were having trouble breathing. Mm -hmm. So we were kind of teaching and supporting local health workers, doing really detailed training on 
what to expect for individuals who were getting exposed to the disease. The other part of it was really educating the community on what they could do. More importantly, when to seek treatment. What we were seeing, which was really difficult for us, at least who were volunteering in the space, was you were seeing this huge surge of people coming to clinicians or to small community centers and just asking questions. And it was actually making the situation worse because you're having these group of people all lining up and coming together and really concerned about the virus. In the case of the United States, what's going on right now with the hospital systems? Are they severely overloaded? Yeah. So you're having certain areas which are overloaded and then certain areas where the cases have severely come down. So for example, like in D.C., where I'm supporting the digital health efforts, we're seeing a few things happen. And so about a month ago, what we were seeing was this dramatic surge of individuals coming into the hospital. They were coming into the ER and asking us, I can't feel certain things in my face. Do I have COVID-19? Or I can't taste, which we later found out to be a symptom of COVID-19, was I can't taste or smell. And you were seeing this surge of individuals come into the hospital, right? Whereas these questions can actually be answered without individuals coming into the ER. So our immediate response to that from a clinical perspective here, again, from a systematic view was, how do we stop these individuals from coming to the hospital? How do we provide them the care and respond to their questions in a way to make sure that they're safe and our healthcare workers are safe at the same time? Because being on the front lines, right? Like whether it's in the ER here in the US or even in the trauma center overseas, for a lot of us, it's really difficult to deal with that volume of patients and give individuals the appropriate time to actually address all their concerns. So there needed to be a big shift in terms of how we dealt with this worried well population and those that actually really need intensive care. So right now, with people who are actually very sick and are in the hospitals, and the doctors and the nurses that are on the front lines... What happens if they get sick and they can't work? What does that do to the system? It does a lot of things. I mean, number one is it puts a lot of pressure on other people around them. I mean, I have a sad story to, to share. A very good friend of mine who works as an ER physician, two of her colleagues recently actually got affected by COVID-19 and passed away. Oh, man, I'm so sorry to hear that. And it's just devastating to hear that, right? And the reason that that happened was because there was a lack of personal protective equipment. So then what happens is their workload is transferred over immediately to her, for example, or to other individuals who are also working in the ER. The second part of that is try to make sure that clinicians are working at a safe space from one another, right? So if doctors and nurses are getting sick, they're not working. That's really the simple solution. And if they are working when they're ill and uncertain, there are serious consequences to that, right? Right. And generally for the doctors on the front lines, where are they in their careers? Like, who are these doctors right now that are in the ERs and, you know, risking their lives? Yeah, it's residents who are starting their careers and then attendings as well. But for example, in a typical ER, you'll have one or two attendings kind of manning the floor. Then around them, you'll have this army of residents or other healthcare workers. So nurse practitioners, physician assistants, nurses who are supporting the decisions that the attendings are making. So if you're looking kind of at the balance of the healthcare worker, there are much fewer attendings compared to the army of healthcare workers that are supporting them, right? So I mean, they work as a team very closely, but there's a large group of healthcare workers supporting the physician's decisions. So this creates sometimes a little bit of tension. And we're seeing this in New York where some medical residents are saying, hey, look, I'm putting my life on the line here, right? I'm getting paid, as I was mentioning earlier, 50 to 60K a year putting in these heavy shifts, you know, am I entitled to some hazard pay? Right. Am I entitled to perhaps some student loan forgiveness? 
But on the flip side of it, it's hard for us to negotiate for the younger physicians because we're thinking, well, you know, it's only a few years. I'll be on the opposite side of this eventually anyway. I just got to stick through this and eventually I'll be okay because I'm going to get that paycheck at the end of this. So there's kind of this fine balancing. Like you don't really want to burn those bridges in terms of being upset. You mentioned to me that more senior level doctors control a bit of who's performing what procedures and how much is charged. Is that something you can explain to us in terms of how the hierarchy works? I can answer that question twofold. So one from a COVID-specific perspective. So I think as I was mentioning, for a lot of younger doctors who've been asking for hazard pay or some kind of financial compensation, the accusation is sometimes it's, oh, you're not dedicated to the cause or you're not sacrificing enough for the cause. And it's kind of disheartening for me to hear that because you know I see these young doctors every day putting their lives on the line and then being accused to kind of say, oh, you're asking for money, you should be more committed. I think that the thought process, yes, we're willing to sacrifice anything and everything. For sure we are. We have a duty of care. We care about the profession that we have. But at the same time, we also need to look after ourselves. On the procedural side, with COVID, almost all elective procedures have been canceled, um, which I think has been the right move. So we're only performing procedures that are necessary. From a, let's answer the question, let's say in a post-COVID world, what's happening procedurally? Let's say a procedure comes that needs to happen, right? Most of the specialists that are highly experienced or have had this large patient following usually gets the referral. For a lot of us kind of like younger individuals who are just coming out to get more experience or we're, we're practicing our skills, we're usually not getting this kind of large referral base because as a young attending, you're trying to find your way in this community. It's just like any business really. And, and I, think, I think that's fair in, in many ways. So what ends up happening, and as we talked about earlier, was a lot of us are seeing opportunities in more rural settings or in more smaller towns where there is still a large service gap. And so what would you like to see change for your fellow doctors? I mean, many things. Provide care in a safer way and then in a more effective way. How can physicians practice more preventative health by getting compensated for that? There has to be a shift, right, in terms of like how the medical system is being constructed. At the moment, it's very like acute centric. It's like you're sick, you come in, we look after you, see you later. Yeah. We're not actually then spending a lot of the time on the preventative side, which I think we need to invest more time in. And finding ways to get physicians to be compensated for their preventative care is significant. So on the healthcare provider side or the health system side, more ability to provide telemedical services. I want to be able to respond to questions when I have time. So if somebody has a question about COVID or about a symptom, I should be able to answer that question for you in a way that's safe and in a secure environment. And I should be able to do that constantly because that does a few things. One, it actually expands my ability to practice beyond the walls of a hospital. And secondly, it actually helps me. You start becoming a health coach. We don't need more acute physicians. We need more people to help people eat better, exercise more, learn how to take their medications the right way, wash their hands, for example, with COVID, practice social distancing. People need support with that on a daily basis. My favorite line is like, oh, you've come to see me, great, I'll see you in four to six weeks. It doesn't help, right? What you want is, is constant communication to support people when there is uncertainty. Like, how can we be utilized as physicians, not only to provide care directly, but also on a systematic level to make sure that these types of pandemics are kind of handled earlier, or this information is being spread earlier, and individuals are actually interacting with their clinicians earlier instead of when it becomes too late. We've been hearing about how much trauma and stress doctors are experiencing right now. 
what's happening in terms of mental health support for them either now or when the pandemic slows down? Yeah, there's a few things that we've done. So it, it's funny, we used to say, oh yeah, let's create peer-to-peer groups for our patients. So a group of patients who have the disease, let's put them in a group community so they can talk to each other. We're doing that now. Like I'm talking to my ER colleagues and my trauma colleagues globally. My surgeon friends in Australia, my ER friends in the UK, we're all talking to each other. Hey, what are you doing? What are you seeing? And we're on the phone a lot, actually supporting each other more than anything else, mentally. And that's been, for me at least, incredibly helpful. Just talking in general about what each of us are doing differently for treating individuals who have COVID and then for our colleagues who are affected by it, how can we support them better? I mean, some of these stories that I'm hearing in terms of how my ER colleagues, for example, in the UK are supporting their admin staff who actually got COVID, how they're going to their house, cooking for them, delivering food every day, taking their kids to school. There's a huge rally around within the community to actually support one another. That's amazing, man, because there's only so much we can do to show our support to people working in hospitals right now. And what would you like to tell the audience on what's the best way we can support our doctors? I think be kind and provide gratitude, right? I think for a lot of us, we love serving the community and and we love to be there for everybody. And sometimes just that small thank you or a warm smile is, I mean, it keeps us going. I think sometimes a lot of us can get lost in the details because we're just moving from one thing to the next. And I think part of it is also our inability to stop because we're so stressed. I've been getting a few cards and a few thank you notes, and that just gives me motivation to, to get out there again and really support some of these communities who need help. There is also, at the same time, a sense of empowerment encircling the air. I've had friends that have been tested COVID positive And most of us are in our mid-30s or late-30s and have recovered successfully after 10 days of isolation. And this gives me immense joy and satisfaction knowing that there is hope. Fortunately, the emergency doctors continue to talk amongst ourselves within the community. And every day we start thinking about different ways to treat people. We, We share knowledge among our community and at least amongst the emergency medicine group, we have a good support network, and that's comforting. Some days are good, some days are bad, and some days are really bad, and some days are exceptionally good. So I definitely encourage everybody to still stay at home, still self-quarantine, you know, and the emergency department is always open, and we're always eager to take care of patients, irrespective of how dire the situation is. In terms of emotional and mental clarity, I have never felt more loved by strangers. And it's little things that count and make a huge difference. That's what's really touched me and that's what gives me the power to keep going. And I'm determined to fight this. Very much aware that I'm going to test positive soon, but I'm not too worried because I know that we're all in this unfamiliar territory together. And I know that we will fight this. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. The overload on the hospitals due to COVID-19 has changed a lot of things about our access to medical care. Even if you haven't fallen ill with the virus, chances are you've changed your health habits in the past month. People are putting off routine appointments like checkups and physical therapy. Elective surgeries and procedures that aren't virus related have been pushed, then pushed again. And when it comes to non-virus emergencies, how can we keep ourselves safe without putting even more strain on local hospitals? The answer is probably a combination of things, some more difficult than others. 
digital health developments, continued self-isolation, limited and structured reopening of the economy, and a continued effort to work on a vaccine while testing the efficacy of herd immunity. This is a group effort and nothing will work without everyone on board. In the meantime, we have to listen to our healthcare experts because they're putting their lives on the line to make sure we keep ours. I wanna thank Nitin Viswani for his time and for being so open and transparent with us. Thank you to Natasha and Burr for sharing your stories with us during one of the toughest times in your careers. And a huge thank you to all the healthcare professionals at the hospitals for doing what you're doing. We're so incredibly grateful for your work. Stay safe out there. This episode was edited and produced by Olivia Briley and engineered by Maya Terrell. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Sign up at thetalkmoney.com for further deep dives and to hear other episodes. We appreciate you sharing this with your friends and, of course, subscribing to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. Until next time. 